And way of recap, and you'll understand why a recap is important for the text we'll be looking at this morning. The first five and a half chapters of Leviticus lay out five different offerings that God instructed the people of Israel to make at the tabernacle of meeting. Again, it's worth repeating. Leviticus was not designed to work, but to establish a way that God would work. In the first half of this book, where God is explaining how he should be approached by sinners, there is no doubt that everything about that was predicated upon these sacrifices. In chapter 1, we have the protocols for what's known as the burnt offering, which intended to illustrate the atoning sacrifice, not that man would make, but God would have to make on behalf of sinners, the sins of the world. As we've noted, God would have to offer something costly, an unblemished male of his herd. Jesus, the sacrifice, would have to willingly endure something ghastly. We see this in the burnt offering. And in the end, our atonement would come from our faith in those two things to make us right with God. The key verse we find in Leviticus 1 verse 4 where God promises that if you do these things, it will be accepted on your behalf. In chapter 2, we were presented with what's known as the grain offering. Directly following the sacrifice God would make to atone for our sins, the Lord then explains to us the appropriate way we should respond to Him on an account of His great grace. God doesn't, and it's amazing to me, He doesn't demand that we bring anything extravagant. Nor does He delight in things that are artificial or fake. Our sacrifice should be with no leaven. It should lack honey. God tells us to bring to Him fine flour which was common. Everyone had it mixed with oil, an anointing, setting aside the Holy Spirit, something common mixed with the divine, seasoned with salt and topped with a smell God enjoyed, frankincense. In chapter 3, we transition from these two offerings, from the response of His grace to now a celebration of His grace. The peace offering was not a sacrifice that we would make to secure a peace with God but a sacrifice we would make to celebrate the peace that Jesus has secured most gloriously on our behalf. Because of the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, satisfying a debt we could not pay, today we not only have oneness with Him through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, but we experience genuine community with one another. Well, the first three offerings were made as a manifestation of of one's free will. They were free will offerings. And the sacrifice being received by the Lord is described as a sweet aroma. The next two, the sin and the trespass offerings laid out in chapters 4, 5, and part of 6 were much different. Regardless of whether a sin was committed or not committed via the manifestations of one's nature, which was the sin offering, or was done willfully, the trespass offering, regardless A sacrifice was demanded by the Lord nonetheless. You could never plead ignorance or I just didn't know there was still sacrifice. It's worth noting, and the procedures concerning these two offerings, the sin and the trespass offering, the connection back to the burnt offering is undeniable. And in fact, the burnt offering is referenced an astounding ten times in chapters four and five alone. That 
don't deal with the burnt offering. More is written about the burnt offering and pertaining to the sin and the trespass than chapter 1 alone, which tells us something important. The entire purpose of the sin offering and the trespass offering, sins of nature or, or that of will, is to point us back to a sacrifice that God would make on our behalf. Atonement is only found in the sacrifice that He's made. In Hebrews chapter 10, we have recorded for us a snippet of a conversation that Jesus has with the Father before coming to the world. It's a fascinating piece of Scripture. Let me read you a section. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, the author of Hebrews writes, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Behold, though, I have come to do your will, O God. You see, the key to appreciating and understanding all of these offerings laid out for us in Leviticus is to realize, again, they weren't designed to work, but to set the stage for a work Jesus would come and accomplish on our behalf. As we transition to the remainder of Leviticus 6, and then proceed to work our way through the entirety of chapter 7, you should know the instructions for these five offerings we've spent the last several weeks looking at are repeated. That's exciting, isn't it? We're going to look at them again. That said, there is one twist. While the first five and a half chapters focus on the way in which the offerer, the worshiper, was to come and make your sacrifice at the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, the twist now, we'll look at all five of them again, but we're going to center instead on the priestly protocols. So the first six chapters, it's all about the worshiper. They're now repeated, focusing on the priests. So let's just get into it. Verse 8 of Leviticus 6, the only church looking at these verses in a thousand mile radius. Verse 8, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron, or as he's more modernly known as Aaron, command Aaron, some of you got the joke, some of you didn't, that's okay. Command Aaron and his sons, this being the priests, saying this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be upon the hearth of the altar all night until morning and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it now the the fire was to burn all night ensuring that the offering itself was completely consumed that's the purpose here verse 10 and the priest in the morning shall put on his linen garments this would be a long shirt and his linen trousers his pants He shall put on his body and shall take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar. And he shall put them, this being the ashes, beside the altar. Then the priest shall take off his garments, this being the linen shirt and the linen pants, put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Now, since we understand already the deeper typological significance that the burnt offering has pertaining to Jesus, you can't help but note the care the specific care in which God wanted the priest to handle even the ashes of the burnt offering. Why does God care so much? Well, it's because these things represent His Son. This was all about Jesus. Not only was it the job of the priest to keep the fire burning all night 
so that the offering was consumed. But in the morning, God's very clear what was to happen. They were to shovel off the ashes from the altar, place them into a pile to the side. Then they were to stop, go, change out of their priestly garments into street clothes before transporting the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Verse 12, And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 24, we're going to see that during the first implementation of all of the things we've been looking at, like day one, where Moses and Aaron go through the protocols, they make the according offerings, that from the presence of the Lord came out a fire that consumed this first offering. God literally, as we'll see next Sunday, He ignited the altar. Because the fire itself is the one supernatural element of the sacrificial system. The only divine element. It was one of the central jobs of the priest to ensure that fire, that divine kindling, was never extinguished. Verse 14, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He, being the priest, shall take from it his handful of fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense which is on the grain offering and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. And the remainder of it, being the grain offering, Aaron and his sons shall eat. Aaron and his sons, this is the tribe of Levi. They shall eat it with unleavened bread. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat it, verse 17. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy. Now back in Leviticus 2, we noted a central contrast between the burnt offering and the grain offering. Well, the first was to be utterly devoured by flame upon the altar. The offering of grain was different. Not only was the amount of fine flour never specified, leaving it up to the worshiper, but only a memorial portion was actually offered to the Lord, leaving the remaining share as an allotment to the priests and their families. In the verses we just read, it appears that the priests, actually, were then required to offer from their share of your grain offering a memorial portion of their own and an act of thanksgiving, a response to God's grace. I contend to this point that a pastor who fails to tithe himself is disqualified from asking others to do so. The priests were to give of their own portion as well. While we've covered these things in great detail already, there is, here within the grain offering, another spiritual law that God is establishing that is still consistent within our New Testament context. In fact, it's worthy of our quick examination. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, it was only the tribe of Levi that was not given a specific portion of the land of promise. The land was divided between all the tribes but Levi. They weren't given any land. Instead, 
God goes about, in other passages, structuring things. Whereby the Levites, they existed, their sole focus was to be on the affairs of the tabernacle. Within their practical needs being met through their service. This was God's determined order. Now the reason that this is significant boils down to the reality that's actually much different than you and I would structure things. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you and I were drawing it all up, it would make total sense, in fact, be appropriate that a stipulation be made that any offering given to the Lord would be given to the Lord. That no human, sinful human, would have his grimy fingers on it, right? Like if you and I were drawing, I mean, the audacity it would take for any of us to be like, you know what, the offering's given to God, like we're going to get a cut. I would be worried about a lightning bolt coming down from heaven for such a thing. And yet, what blows me away is that within the grain offering, God is again establishing a law whereby it's okay, in fact, entirely appropriate for someone that is engaged in full-time ministry to then have his needs met by the ministry. I would not have drawn it up that way, but God does. There are those who will say, what right does a pastor have to take a percentage of my tithes and offerings, the offerings I make to God, what right does he have to take a portion of that to himself? I'm not giving it to the pastor. I'm giving it to the Lord. Again, I would not have drawn it up the way that it is, but God has established a law. In fact, a few years ago, we had a family leave our church and make a stink because they thought it was wrong that I took a salary. In fact, they contended that I should work a full-time job and care for the needs of our growing church in, this, in my spare time. Ironically, in the few years that they came to our church, never once did they ever tithe or support the church financially. While I think it's entirely fair and appropriate to have a conversation about what percentage a pastor should be paid in proportion to the ministry budget, and taking into consideration that pastor, his family, his needs, that being said, don't miss this, the foundational precedent for a pastor taking a salary, it's found in Leviticus 2 and repeated here at the end of Leviticus 8. God, not me, God set it up that way. So, so no, your financial support, it does enable me the necessary and adequate time to serve you and to serve your family and to pastor your church. Again, the New Testament connection and a discussion with a group of Corinthians that had these very problems raising similar issues. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14. And don't miss where he ties ideas to. He says, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. What is he talking about? The things we're looking at. Paul then says, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. In his first letter to a young pastor named Timothy, Paul will again invoke the law and then add the words of Jesus. He says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word of God and doctrine. For the scriptures say, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. 
And then he quotes Jesus in Luke 10. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Verse 19, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering of Aaron and his sons, that we're still discussing the grain offering, which they shall offer to the Lord beginning on the day when that priest is anointed. The Levites served on a rotated schedule. So on the day you're anointed, the day you start your service, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour should be offered as a grain offering. This was the daily grain offering the priest was to make every day that he was serving in the tabernacle. Half of it he should make in the morning, half of it at night. It shall be made in a pan with oil. When it is mixed, you shall bring it in. The baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. The priest from among his sons who is anointed in his place shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. It shall be wholly burned. For every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Whether you're a pastor or not, since it is true that we're all priests, a royal priesthood, as Peter would say, there is a specific or particular aspect of these procedures that I find to be deeply meaningful, worthy of note. Like, don't miss that their grain offering, as a priest, I'm going to work in the tabernacle, their, their grain offering it was split. It was to be offered a portion in the morning and then a portion in the evening. In fact, the idea is that before they did any work at all, and then when their work was completed for the day, they would make this offering, the grain offering, which was all about what? Responding to God's grace. You see, what it served is that before I did anything, I wanted to be reminded that everything I do is a response to the goodness of God, what God has done for me. And then when I'm done with my day, doing everything I've done, I want to again place my thoughts that though I'm tired and though I'm warm out, man, I had this awesome opportunity to serve God. A little in the morning and a little in the evening. As priests, I think it's a good model to start your day thanking God for His grace to finish that day thanking Him for His grace, to center your mind throughout your day on God's grace. Verse 24, Also the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. The, the priest can eat the meat of the sin offering, but only while on the job. This is actually going to play uh, an interesting role in Leviticus chapter 10. Verse 27, everyone who touches its flesh, again, the sin offering, you must be holy. So you've gone through the protocols to be holy. It's appropriate for you to handle these things. When his blood is sprinkled on any garment, and this would be accidental. You're in the process of making these offerings for the people. Blood splashes up onto your garments, which are holy, are set apart. We're told in the law, the Lord commands, that you shall wash that on which it, the blood was sprinkled. And you should wash it in a holy place. Then we get some interesting stipulations. But the earthen vessel, presumably that you would use to wash the garments, in which it is boiled, when you're done, it shall be broken. And if it, this bloody garment, is boiled for cleaning purposes, in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed with water. All the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. But no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned in the fire. And I, I've mentioned this before. It bears repeating that the details matter. 
Like the details play a significant role in God establishing for us larger concepts the people then and us now need to understand. Because this particular offering was made on account of one's sin, sins of nature. God establishes here something we should not overlook. He establishes in these protocols and details a clear delineation between the way what was considered holy was to interact with what was unclean. It's very specific. If the blood of the sin offering splattered on any of your garments while the priest was going through the rituals and the protocols, the Lord specifies, He instructs that you stop what you're doing and that you go and you clean those garments immediately. In fact, this was such a serious matter to the Lord, He even specifies that in the cleaning process, if you use an earthen vessel or a clay pot, because the vessel was porous, there was no way you could ever get the blood out of the, the, the material. You had to break it. It could never be used again. If you got tired of running through earthen vessels, because, man, that got old, and you wise up and it's like, we're going to use a bronze pot now. It's like, okay, that's great. It's not porous, but you gotta, when you're done using it, you got to clean it. In fact, you got to scour it with fire. And then you need to rinse it with water. Since we are part of this special priesthood, you and I, these are the priestly protocols that are applicable to us because we're priests. There are two things about this that I find so encouraging. First, do you not find it (laughs) merciful that God knew And the process of you and I going about our priestly duties in this ugly world that he knew up front there would be times we would get splattered and defiled. That he knows it's going to happen. God knows the challenge that you and I face living in a fallen world. And yet what grace there is, at least I find it, in the fact that God knowing the challenge we face, makes a concession for what we're to do when our righteous garments get soiled. (laughs) We're to be scoured. That burning fire of the Holy Spirit we return to. Purify me, O Lord. And then we rinse ourselves with the water. The water of God's Word. There's no judgment how d- you should have been more careful. Oh, no, no, no. It's going to happen. And this is what you do when it does. I love that. Chapter 7, verse 1. Likewise, this is the law of the trespass offering. It is most holy. And the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the trespass offering. And its blood he shall sprinkle all around on the altar. Again, you can't help but notice the Atonement for our intentional sins, again, brings us back to Jesus' sacrifice. And he, the one who commits the trespass, shall offer it from all its fat, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys, the fat that's on them by the flanks, the fatty lobes attached to the liver, but the kidneys he shall remove. We've covered those things before. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is his trespass offering. Every male among the priests may eat it, It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. 
the trespass offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them both. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. Verse 8, the priest who offers anyone's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has offered. Also every grain offering that is baked in the oven and all that is prepared in the covered pan or in the pan shall be the priest who offers it. Every grain offering, whether mixed with oil or dry, shall belong to all the sons of Aaron, to one as much as the other. Now like the sin offering, the Lord is clear the meat of the trespass offering was also to be eaten by the priests, which to me has kind of a, a very particular significance. And don't miss this. While there is no doubt, and again, we've had, what, six, seven weeks of all of this? There's no question, right? This whole system of sacrifice, it was bloody. Oh, man, was it bloody. It was barbaric. Like the sacrificial system, the nature to it, with so many innocent animals being butchered at the tabernacle. Like we kind of recoil a little to that. And yet, while all of this intended to articulate to us the radical uh, consequences of sin, that innocence had to die, blood had to be spilt, it's worth us at least pointing out here that the animals themselves were not wasted at all. Like, please don't miss that. Like with the one exception of the burnt offering where the entire animal was given to the Lord had to be consumed, in every other instance, the animals sacrificed were used to feed the tribe of Levi, the priests. In fact, in the case of even the burnt offering. Nothing was wasted. The priests were given the skin of the animal, which, as you can imagine, they would use for tents and housing, as well as for clothing. Like, my point is that God created here a system whereby a necessary sacrifice was made for all the reasons we've discussed, but at the same time, the animal wasn't insulted. The animal was used and utilized to feed the priests. There's one interesting side point I'd like to make. Don't forget the burnt offering, again, is all about the sacrifice that Jesus would make, right? To atone for our sin. And that word atonement literally means covering. So Jesus and the burnt offering would make a sacrifice to cover our sin. How fascinating then that the only part of that particular sacrifice left over and given to the priest was what? The skin that would act as a covering? You know, the very first mention of that word skin in the Hebrew, we find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, when as a consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve and their makeshift coverings of fig leaves that didn't work, we're told that the Lord God made for them tunics of skin. Same word. And He clothed them. The clothing, the covering. What a beautiful picture. Verse 11. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes and his offering, he shall offer leavened bread. 
with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. Now, we've noted this before. The peace offering is all about celebrating this life of peace that we've been given through Jesus, his sacrifice, and the oneness we have with God. Part of the sacrifice is given to the Lord, with the rest being split up and enjoyed with the priests and the worshiper. Like, this was an offering you made before the Lord, but you enjoyed it with other people. Peace with God, oneness, oneness with others. Back in Leviticus 3, the procedures for the peace offering focus primarily on what would be done when the worship offered a sacrifice of the herd or of the flock. That being said, in this section of the law of the peace offerings, non-blood sacrifices are not just included, but specifically addressed. Now, one of the interesting aspects of this passage, I don't know if you picked it up, probably jumped off the page if you noticed, is this bizarre allowance and a peace offering for, un, for, for not just unleavened bread, but also leavened bread. Did you notice that? That leavened bread could be included. That's bizarre. Leaven, we know, is a picture of the corrupting nature of sin, which meant that it was absolutely, unequivocally excluded leaven from being involved in the grain offering. No leaven. Very clear. And yet in this instance, God says that leaven could be used in the peace offering. I, I believe that this unique exception to the much larger rule is God's way of illustrating for us something very important. And that is the reality that while we may be, because of the work of Jesus right now, presently, positionally, in the throne room of God, justified and righteous before Him, positionally, God knows that practically it's impossible for us to offer anything without it being corrupted to some degree by the sin of self. I know it's impossible to offer a peace offering without there being a little bit of you. And so, okay. In this regards, a little leaven can be included. To this point, J. Vernon McGee says this emphasis is that, the, is that peace with God does not depend on the believer attaining sinless perfection. And to that I say, amen, hallelujah, thank goodness. Verse 14, and from it, again, the peace offering, he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. We'll get to that in a moment. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it till morning. But if the sacrifice for his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice. But on the next day, the remainder of it may also be eaten, the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice. On the third day, though, ah, burn it with fire. Now keep in mind, there's no such thing in this culture as refrigeration. Therefore, meat, it doesn't last very long, especially once it's been butchered. As such, within these verses, God's kind of laying out this process by which, hey, if we're having this celebration, this peace offering, it's merriment, we're eating together. Man, you make that offering day one, you're good. Eat it, enjoy it. Day two, ah, you know, you really want to check that meat out, but you could probably still go for it. Day three, get rid of it. It's bad. It smells, it stinketh. No bueno. Note, though, because again, this is about sin, trespass. Peace. 
Because this, is, this meat is holy and sanctified. You couldn't just throw it out in the trash like you would anything else. Instead, because it was holy, it would have to be burned with fire on the third day. Verse 18, And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, so if you break this law, first it's not going to be accepted, nor shall it be imputed to him, so it's no good. Said it, it is an abomination to him who offers it. And the person who eats of it shall bear guilt. The flesh that touches anything, the touch, the flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the person that touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or an abominable unclean thing, and he who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that, sh that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, there's two fundamental ideas here that we should note. You can't escape. First, horizontal sin is always a vertical violation. I'll repeat that. It, it, it's important. Horizontal sin is always a vertical violation. God takes these things personally. In fact, the core principle at play in these instructions about eating the meat of the peace offering is that what is impure will always defile what is pure. And not the other way around. And don't miss that. That's important. Again, there's a law being established here that has New Testament context. What is impure will always defile what is pure. What is pure doesn't make what is impure pure. Have you ever noticed this concept playing itself out to the advice you give your kids about their friends? You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, Paul says, Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. What is impure will always defile what is pure and not the other way around. You might, as a young man, have a conviction that I want to be a virgin when I get married. If you're dating a gal that doesn't share that conviction, who's going to win out? <laughs> you think you've got that good of willpower? No. What is impure always defiles what is pure. What is pure doesn't make what's impure better. It's a principle. It's a law established here. Now you know. The second idea you can't escape, and in fact the one that kind of hits you right between the eyes, is the reality that failing to obey God's commands about eating meat the third day has very severe consequences. Like there's consequences to not obeying God. Because the peace offering was a, a meal that you shared with God, celebrating a oneness we have with Him, any violation to His instructions about that thing, well, it just separated the individual from oneness, meaning you were, you were expelled. You were cut off from His people. You violated the fundamental covenant of us being one. So we're not anymore. Goodbye. Verse 22, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel, and now we're, we're transitioning here from the priest to kind of the population at large. Saying, you shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goats and the fat of an animal that dies naturally. 
and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts or roadkill. It can be used in another way, but you shall no, by no means eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer as an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or of beast. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 28, Speak to the children of Israel. He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, and the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. Also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. Now, as part of the peace offerings, we noted that there was what was called a wave offering. This wave offering occurred when you would take the breast of the animal and you would literally take it and you would wave it before the Lord. Again, this is what you're going to eat, but you're, you're recognizing that it's sanctified. You'd wave it right to left, left to right. Heave offering is where you would distinguish now the right thigh. Again, you're going to eat this, but you would... Uh, by recognizing its holiness, heave it. So you would wave going right to left. A heave, you would go up and down. Up and down. You see anything? Heave. Wave. Heave. Wave. Aside from the fact that the, the Pope kind of stole that move. It's typologically a picture of what? The cross of Jesus. Beautiful imagery. Verse 33. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part, the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons to the children of Israel by statute forever. And then we kind of get here a summarizing of these things, final three verses. This is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons, from the offerings made by fire to the Lord on the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests. This is going to happen in the next few chapters. Then the Lord commanded this be given to them by the children of Israel on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. We'll examine that next Sunday. This is the law, again, summarizing of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the consecrations, and the sacrifice of the peace offering which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord and the wilderness of Sinai. That wasn't too bad, was it? Now, in way of wrapping up this whole section, I want to leave you this morning with an overarching observation. As a general rule of thumb, when it comes to studying the Bible, there, there's something that should always catch your attention. And that is the fact that God only repeats things that he finds to be of the utmost importance. He repeats himself. Not to be redundant. Never to be redundant. God instead repeats himself as a way of emphasizing what is most significant. Beyond that, when God repeats himself, literally back to back, like what we find here in Leviticus 1-7. through 7. 
that back-to-back nature of the repetition then only heightens the emphasis and the significance of what's happening. My point? The very fact seven chapters of your Bible are dedicated to these five offerings within two chapters recapping the previous five, that should tell you something. That what is being articulated and communicated and pictured is serious and very consequential. But God here in the repetition is not only heightening for us the seriousness of our sin, not only is he highlighting the incredible necessary uh, requirements for uh, the atonement of your sin, but God is crystal clear that a relationship with him requires, demands, there is no way around, sacrifice. I mentioned this before, again, it bears repeating. Leviticus opens with God descending from Mount Sinai to dwell in the midst of his people at this tabernacle. And then most incredibly, the holy God of the universe invites humanity, not just the Jew, but all humanity, to come to him and have a relationship with him at this tent of meeting. And yet, God is clear right from the jump. Come to me, but there is both a right and a wrong way for you to come. I'm inviting everyone to come, but you need to know there's a right and a wrong way to do so. These sacrifices, they're non-negotiable. They're not optional. They are required, and God repeats them to hammer home that reality. Did you notice the one big difference in the repeating of these five offerings? There's a lot of nuanced differences, lots and lots of similarities, but there is one big difference in the repetition of the five and the initial five that we've already studied. Did you notice it? Did you pick out the difference? Did you see it? The difference centers on the ordering. In the first listing, the peace offering was third in sequence, mainly because it was the third and last of these free will offerings. But in God repeating all of these offerings in chapter 6 and 7, the peace offering is not third in sequence. Where is it? It's last in order. You think it's an accident. Or do you think there's a point? (laughs) The significance, the implications are profound. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said he did not come to destroy the law. Why did he come? He came to fulfill it. Not only does this mean that Jesus satisfied the righteousness, the righteous demands, the requirements of the law, but what this tells us is that Jesus embodied all of the types and all of the shadows therein. Like one scholar writes, the Levitical system was a picture gallery of the coming Savior. 
Like God was clear. Come to me. Meet with me. But if you want a relationship with me, these five offerings are required. And then most amazingly, Jesus, his son, came and fulfilled all of them. The point, I want a relationship with you. In order for that to happen, you must come to me through Jesus. That's the point. It's why it's we get seven chapters. It's why it's repeated. In the burnt offering, we see the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross as the sole mechanism by which our atonement is provided through his bloodshed. In the grain offering, we then have a picture. We haven't mentioned this before, but chew on it on your own, of the grain, fine flour, unleavened cakes, Jesus as the bread of life. He not only atones for our sin, but we have here this picture of Jesus his sacrifice, giving to us sustenance for life. He not only saves us from death, he gives us life in himself. Consecration. Tying all of that imagery to Jesus, it, it makes sense when you think about the night before he died, he took what? Unleavened cakes, matzah, and he told his disciples, no longer does this represent what you think it does. It's my body broken for you. Eat the grain offering. His body being broken. And then in the sin and the trespass offerings, we see how Jesus has sacrificed. It not only atones for our fallen nature, but most incredibly, our sinful choices as well. By His blood, we have been forgiven. We've been made clean. And in the end, it is the culmination of all four of those offerings that does what? It reconciles us to God. It yields peace with God. Again, why the peace offering here comes last. According to Hebrew tradition, and again, this is purely tradition, I stumbled across this reading a rabbi, ironically. So this is not biblical, but it is interesting. It's, it's worth sharing. So some of the questions that you guys have been asking is like, how did these things practically happen? And, and most of the time, like, you had one opportunity as a family, a year, give or take, to make a trip to the tabernacle and later the temple. Like, you couldn't go every single time you had a sin or a trespass. And instead, you would take one trip. And, and what you would do is you'd go to the tabernacle, you'd go to the temple, and we'll see examples of this, and you would offer all five at once. You can kind of cover all your bases with the one trip you could take. That's logical. That's natural. We can understand how that would be customary. Now, if you're the priest, your family comes, you have all these offerings, and you've got your part, you've got to cut up the animal, and I'm, I'm your priest for the day, making the, the right offerings, the right sacrifices. This is a long day, Joker. I'm tired by the end of the day. Again, one rabbi I read, he said that there was a customary thing that was said at the conclusion of all five offerings. When the final offering of peace was made, the priest would turn and would exhale and he would say, it is finished. How interesting that in John chapter 19, verse 30, we read how Jesus, acting not just as our sacrifice, but also our priest to make a sacrifice, when his work was done, he exhaled and he said from the cross, to tell us die. It is finished. It is finished. You see, 
in Leviticus 1 through 7. A passage of Scripture most people skip right over in their Bible reading plans. A place where you start working your way through and you tap out fast. But what we find here in these chapters is that God was crystal clear. I want you to come and meet with me. But these five sacrifices are required. Not because they work, but because they set a framework by which my son will work for you. So that you can come and have a relationship with me. And when Jesus was done from the cross, he said it is finished. Done. Paid in full. Satisfied. You reconciled with your creator. All of these things, how awesome. They, they point to Jesus. Illustrating for us the totality of the sacrifice he would accomplish for you and I. So Father, Lord, we thank you for that word.